Well, welcome to Safe Haven. If you're a guest with us today, my name's Troy Nicholson. I'm, I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and it really is an honor to have you come worship with us today. We journey through, straight through books of the Bible. Um, we're in Luke, Luke chapter 6, and <clears throat> Lord willing, today we'll, we'll make it through that. We'll hit chapter 7 next week. We always pick back up where we've been. God's been teaching us all kind of things, and so we're glad you're here to journey with us through the text. <clears throat> Long-termers. Man, it's good to see you. Uh, it is freezing outside, but it's warm in here because of your smiling faces. And um, so it's always good to just be among kindred spirit and family, especially around the text. And so we've had a lot of gatherings here recently. We've had church gatherings, but there's been one gathering that I've noticed has happened quite often around here in the past few months, that being baby showers. There are lots and lots of baby showers, and as a matter of fact, there's lots of babies, and there are babies all over the place, there's babies and bellies everywhere, there's, and, and I, I love it, I love it. As a matter of fact, in two years, I hope there's 50 babies who are now two-year-olds hopping off this stage after church and running around chasing each other, and like, that don't bother me. You may have grew up in a church where everybody was like, no, child, don't run, don't do this. And I'm that weird pastor that's like, go get them. <laughs> get them, Jason. Uh, I love it, man. It's teeming with life around here, and that's exciting. Um, but all of the baby showers got me thinking about something. It got me thinking about <laughs> what is the fastest reproducing mammal on the planet other than the Hadoos. Uh <laughs> And the hunters, I mean, that, I mean, you guys are in that run too, hunter clan. <laughs> um, who is, what is the fastest reproducing mammal? And here's what it is. It is the bandicoot. The, uh, you know, maybe some of you already knew that, but the bandicoot, this is where crash bandicoot comes from. Um, but the bandicoot reproduces on an 11-day gestation period. 11 days. So... In theory, and they give birth to about packs of 10, or here we go, herds, flocks, whatever they are, um, litters, litters of 10. And so in theory, if you had two of them by the end of the year with their offspring and their offspring and their offspring, you could have a million bandicoots in a year. That's, that's pretty fast. It's pretty incredible. That's, again, all in theory. Now I want you to track with me. Track with me, and I knew that would be a risky illustration. Hang on with me. To kick us off, track with me. Jesus, through the text that we've been through the past couple of weeks, is calling us to be gospel bandicoots. To be reproducing the gospel in that shape, form, or fashion. Um, not in every 11 years, but in 11 Days, every 11 minutes, we should be reproducing the gospel. And he's been giving us that, ways in which we can do that. What it looks like to be a part of, you remember, the blessed life versus the blessed kingdom versus the worldly kingdom. And what those two distinctions are. And he's been, he's been giving us the ways in which we can model that and reproduce that um, so that everyone around us sees the gospel hope. And so Jesus has been teaching us that. We're going to continue on through that. But as a recap, last week we saw love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. 
So when we model the gospel in those type ways, doing good, lending, loving, all this kind of stuff, we're free to value the Lord, we're free to value others, and we're free to value ourselves in light of the gospel, and that becomes contagious. It becomes replicatory, if that's a word, multiplicity. Now we're just trying to be a synonym with Soros up here. It, it's, it's, it's growing, and, and, and when we do this, God is contagiously infecting the world around us through us by the way in which we live. And so we're going to continue in that journey today. He's going to give us one more way in which we can be a part of contagious Christianity from the inside out. All right, so let's get the bandicoot off the screen. <clears throat> for all the rat haters in the room, you're ready for that to go right as soon as it popped up. You're like, get that thing off the screen. Uh, but we're going to look at this. Let's continue in our journey. We're going to see how to be contagious Christians from the inside out. Number one, he's going to say this, in light of everything we've learned, and again, if you're a guest, please go back to the website and catch up. That, it'll make, all this will make more sense if you track with us. Um, but be contagious by how we think of ourselves and others first. All right, so here we go. Continue our journey, verse 37 of chapter 6. I mean, yes, verse 37 of chapter 6. So judge not, and you will not be judged. Now, here's the pause button here. This is the most known Bible verse in all of the Bible, even by people who know nothing about the Bible. Like, you could walk up to somebody and say, hey, do you know there's a New Testament and an Old Testament in the Bible? And they go, no, I didn't know that. And you say, well, do you know anything about the Bible? And they'll go, yes, do not judge. Like, that's the, one of the biggest verses and most ripped out of context passages in all of Scripture. We'll look at it in just a second. But nonetheless, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for... With the measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. Now, there's the spiritual multiplication. In light of everything we've been going through, this is kind of the summary of how indeed we think of ourselves and others, which, again, can't be stripped out from everything we've been learning the past three or four weeks. Right? So, so sometimes it's helpful in a passage like this to ask, what is Jesus not saying first? What is he not saying? All right. Jesus cannot be saying, judge not in an absolute sense of never be a part of judging. He can't be saying that at all. And the reason I say that is because verse 42 is going to tell us to remove the speck from our brother's eye, which involves judging to some shape, form, or fashion. Verse 44, he's going to tell us to discern good fruit versus bad fruit, which requires judging to some extent. Chapter 17, he's going to tell us to confront sin in one another's lives, which involves judging to some shape, form, or fashion. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to give um, one person in the church over to Satan, who had been involved in some sin, which involves judging of some shape, form, or fashion. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's going to say to actually set up court within church which definitely involves judging to some shape, form, or fashion. So, the whole point is, we cannot judge those outside the church, for sure. But we are indeed, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be our brother's keeper. Right? So, what is, he, 
What he can't be saying is judge not in an absolute sense. So if you ever hear somebody go, hey, you can't judge, only God can judge me. First of all, you go, do you really think that's better? (laughs) That God's the one that judges you as opposed to me? But number two, realize they, they may have ripped that right out of context. You can't, don't judge me. Well, are we brothers? Are we sisters in Christ? So what he's not saying is in an absolute sense, don't judge. So what is he saying? He's saying, I think, to infect the world with Christian love and they'll typically respond in the same. In other words, don't be judgy. There's a difference in judging rightly and being a person who's just constantly judgy. You know those people? Anybody. Anybody just nudge somebody next to you? Does that just happen? Just that spirit of judgment, that consistently judgy person. And I think that's what he's getting at here. Let's look at this. He gives two negative decrees. He says, war against a heart that's judgy and war against a heart that's condemning. Don't be judgmental and don't be condemning. Don't be marked, in other words, by judginess. Don't be marked by a condemning spirit. Those things are the antithesis of contagious Christianity. As a matter of fact, somebody who's constantly judgy and constantly condemning is somebody that we usually do what to? We usually kind of push away from. We usually shy from. And so that's the opposite of contagious Christianity. And he gives two positive decrees here. Have a default heart posture bent towards forgiveness and bent towards giving. Be wired in such a way that when people see you, it's not judgy. They go, that person is, in typical, an understanding, gracious person. They're typically forgiving. They're typically non-condemning. And there's no greater example, as I was thinking through this and studying through this, than King David and Nathan. Track with me. King David had the right to be a judge. As a matter of fact, he was the king. He, he, he was the judge. But if you'll remember, King David had a horrific moment in his life where he fell into adultery with Bathsheba. You guys remember this. If, if you don't, track with the story. This guy, a king named David, um, was peering out the window when everybody else at war, was at war. He saw a lady, and he was like, hey, I want this lady. And so he went after her. And, and so, lo and behold, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Well, to cover it up, He goes and gets Bathsheba's husband, sends him to the front line of war, and he gets killed. So in essence, he murders, and his intent is to indeed murder um, Bathsheba's husband. So David commits adultery, murders the husband. And then in and of himself, he gives himself grace. He forgives himself. He continues and he carries on. Well, then the prophet Nathan shows up. And Nathan comes to the scene, and he comes before King David, and he says, Hey, David. we've got an issue in the kingdom. And David goes, well, I'm the judge, so tell me what happened. So he says, here's what happened. There was a rich man, and he needed to have a party, and he needed to feed some people. So he went to this poor man's sheep, and he took the point, he stole the poor man's sheep, he, he killed the poor man's sheep, and then he used that to feed his friends. What are we going to do with that guy? And David erupts in judgment. And he says, whoa, whoa, that guy is going to get it. 
that is a wicked sinner. Who is this guy? And then if you know the story, Prophet Nathan does what? He looks at David and he says, you're the guy. He crushes him. I think that is a beautiful illustration of what Jesus is saying here. It's not that King David didn't have the right to righteously judge. It's that King David's heart had gone terribly wrong. He was willing to grant himself grace, but in and of himself, he saw no wrong. He lived as judgy. He lived as condemning in this moment of his heart. And King Nathan points it out, and in that moment, it erupts and it changes his life. And many of the Psalms are written after this. King David goes, whoa, whoa, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. It turned him inward. And then as we know, the rest of his life, King David then does usurp the throne. He does live in, and he does judge in a right way. But it all begins with here, the heart. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. If we want to be contagious Christians, then the way in which we begin that is how do I think about myself first? And how does that impact the way that I think about other people? Does that make sense? Am I, am I, am I, am I just constantly judgy of everybody else but have no time for introspection? Or does I, do I let a heart internally in love with the Lord then affect the way that I live it out loud? And so, I think this is a great example. <clears throat> and with consistency, culture is indeed created. So I want to be clear. Thinking rightly does not mean that we as Christians turn a blind eye to truth. Do you hear that? We do not whitewash the truth. That's not what this passage is saying. What is this saying? I think that thinking rightly does mean we turn a seeing eye to truth with a heart of understanding and compassion that we fit in the same category. So I think this is where he's headed. And then culture is created. Judgy people typically create judgy people. Condemning people typically create condemning people. That's why the passage says, with the measure you use, it will be given back to you. And so if everyone around you seems like they're eating bites of cynical pie all the time, the question is, are you the one cooking the pie that they're eating? So he's focusing on the hearts here. So be contagious with how we think of ourselves and others. And then he goes on by be contagious with how we see ourselves and others, which ties together, but there's a little bit of distinction, and we'll keep going. Verse 39. So to illustrate this, he tells them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, watch this, take the log out of your own eye, and then, and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that is in your 
brother's eye. Blind leaders produce blind leaders. Again, just like we were just saying a minute ago, if you don't see yourself rightly, not just think about yourself rightly, but now he actually uses the illustration of seeing. If you don't see yourself rightly, you won't see others rightly. And this is true everywhere. Uh, This is true in your home. This is true in your workplace. This is true at church. This is true in your hobbies. This is true in the community. And then Jesus gives us a clear-cut plan of care if we have issues with not thinking about ourselves or seeing ourselves rightly. And here it is. Ophthalmological, and I hope that said that right. I worked on that one. Ophthalmological introspection. That's how we learn to see rightly um, and to think rightly, is we peer within. We, we see good within. This is the whole illustration of the eye. If there's a speck, uh, we don't just run up and start grabbing it. We first look at our eye, and then once it's removed, we can see rightly to then affect change positively in others. And so this is where he's getting at. It's been said that the eyes are the window to the soul. You guys have heard this, right? I had one guy at a church we were in in Arkansas that took this to a little bit of a creepy level, just going to be honest. Um, I hope you don't watch this on video or online. Um, If you do, brother, I love you. Um, It still was weird. Um, He started coming to church, and he wore these dark, dark sunglasses. Oh, man. My filter's not working today. Is anybody wearing some right now? Okay. (laughs) Michael, put put them things back up. Yeah. And, and he would wear them from the moment he came into the service. And he had really taken that to heart. Of, and it got a little bit creepy, all right? And it was the, I don't want anybody to see my eyes because they'll see the window to my soul. But you know that to be true, don't you? You can tell when you're looking at somebody in their eyes if they're in a state of happiness, typically. Or if they're in a state of hurt. Or if they're in a state of confusion, You can see these things with different people's eyes, dark eyes, uh, cordial eyes. Look, you can see demonic eyes. You can see when there's demonic darkness. The eyes tell a thing. And so I don't don't think it's um, by circumstance or or by happenstance that Jesus uses the eyes to say, if we're going to look, let's really peer deep within our own eyes to see where we're at. And then we'll be able to be contagious Christians if, if we do. And so, two ways you can look into your own eyes. And then we'll blaze through this. But I think this may be the most helpful moment of the message today. There's two ways we can look into our eyes. One is healthy and one is destructive. So let's think about this. A bad way in which we can have introspection first. The bad way would be something along this line. Dan Williams sent me and Andrew a quote this uh, past week, and I thought it was great. It was very timely for this text. It's Michael Hyatt, and he says this, Self-directed regrets sit on the evidence table in the criminal court of our own minds as an ever-expanding mound of exhibits, proving all of our worst limiting beliefs about ourselves. We're all fallible, so if you believe you're a failure, you'll never run out of proof. So introspection can be deadly in one sense. That if you keep looking at everything you regret about yourself and constantly peer in the mirror and go, all right, Troy, yes, I took this text to heart and I'm going to look inside my heart. 
If you stare in the mirror and keep looking at all the rotten things in your heart, you will never run out of literature. You'll constantly find more and more and more and more and more and more. And I don't think Jesus is pushing us to that for sure. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about you can reach the point of excessive sorrow. So, So we don't want that. We don't want excessive sorrow. Because if we constantly peer in an unhealthy way, in a non-gospel way, just kind of looking at all the bad in me, then ultimately you'll move beyond repentance to self-condemnation. And the scripture never leads us to condemnation as believers, okay? So, now, Jesus was a master at this. He was a master at eating with sinners, looking in their eyes, unapologetically pointing out the sin. So lest you think Jesus was a guy who just kind of whitewashed everything. He ate with sinners and loved with sinners and just Jesus was almost a sinner. Is kind of the notion that you get when people say this. Jesus surrounded himself with sinners. Jesus unapologetically ate with them but also looked them right in the eye and said, here's what's got to change. Go and sin no more. He didn't whitewash anything. So he was a master at looking within but then also granting truth and grace simultaneously. And so, how can we do this healthy? How can we do this in a way that's Christ-honoring? Let's look at this. Why do we avoid introspection first will lead us to good, healthy introspection. All right? So why do we avoid introspection? Number one, because we know we'll find something. If I look within, I know I'm going to find something. All right? Number two, Because we're afraid of what else we'll find that we didn't realize was there. Number three, because we don't really want to work through what we know we're going to find or the things that we didn't think we were going to find. Number four, because we don't fully trust in Christ's sufficiency through the gospel. So I go, man, if I peer deep within... Then I'm going to find something, and, and what will I do with it? And we don't think that Christ's grace and his coverage is, is good enough to cover that. We don't believe in his sufficiency. And then number five, because we're afraid of how it will impact others and how they respond. So let's recognize this first, which will lead us to healthy introspection. Understanding why we don't go introspective will help us to go introspective in a proper way, is what I'm trying to say. All right, now, why should we embrace introspection? And here's the good stuff. Number one, because you'll have the ability to decipher between inaccurate and accurate realities in your own life. When we go introspective and begin to think about and process how do I see myself, how do I see others, then and only then, introspectively, we'll be able to look and go, hey, I'm believing this, but that's not reality. Because sometimes doesn't reality overwhelm us and become our perception of life, therefore becoming reality. We see this, this, this warped view, this, this dream life, this people have been telling me this, therefore it must be true. And I don't think about it, I just embrace that it's just true. And introspection gives us the moment where we can hear what people say, we can process what we think, and we can introspectively look and go, is that real or not? And sometimes introspection brings back reality out of what was not reality. Introspection, number two, reduces anxiety due to knee-jerk reactions. 
when we're not helpfully, 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 we're not thinking about ourselves in a healthy way, we're not seeing ourselves rightly, thinking about ourselves rightly in that moment, then we typically just have knee-jerk reactions to moments. Somebody comes up and says something, you said this, knee-jerk. You did this, knee-jerk. You should have done this, knee-jerk. And we just kind of react. But if we've been thinking about and processing our form of reality of, of who we are, what life is really all about, then when somebody comes up and says, here's what you're doing, we can go, hold on a second. I thought about this. And what you say, I don't think is true. Here's what's really true. Because we have cultivated maturity through thinking about ourselves and our reality rightly. It'll help us so it reduces anxiety. Number three, healthy introspection increases self-confidence by fully knowing both your strengths and weaknesses. When I know what I'm weak at and you point out my weakness, then I don't try to puff up and act like I don't have that weakness. I just go, you're right, I do have that weakness. It doesn't affect me in the same way as if I've got to put on a show to prove to you something that I'm really not because I already know that I'm, I'm not. I know that I'm weak. So it, it helps in that way, and so it increases self-confidence. But it also boosts up your strength. If I know who I am, and then you say I'm not that, I, I am this. This introspection does this. And then number four, most importantly, it increases gospel confidence by fully appreciating Christ's sufficiency for you. It's the opposite of why we don't have healthy introspection. When we have good introspection, it's because I know that Christ is sufficient to cover my inadequacies. And so I boast in the gospel. It proves this. And then number five, the ability to create healthy boundaries with those around you which brings about increased connection and increased joy. Introspection does all of these things. And I know that's philosophical, but church, I'm telling you, man, if you can get that, there is freeing truth in that. It's why Jesus says, hey, you want to live a blessed life? Look in your eye first. Peer in. Not just as an exercise or an activity, but because by peering in, you'll actually set yourself free. And you think by peering in, you'll crush yourself, but it won't. Peer in with the gospel. Apply the gospel. Don't peer in without the gospel. You will crush yourself, all right? But peer in with the gospel, and you'll find more freedom than you've ever had before. In other words, you will see clearly to take the speck that is out of your brother's eye, which is the passage. Not as a pious judge, but as one who looks at your brother and goes, I'm helping you get this speck out because I've had that speck too. And I know if we can just remove it and they slap your hand, no, stop. You're like, just let me. No. But there is a splinter in your eyeball. <laughs> I know, and I like it. <laughs> no, if you'll get it out, you won't have itchiness, and you won't have redness, and it won't hurt. It just Hang on just a second. Pew! And then they go, oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, have you ever had somebody point out 
a speck in your eye that at first you were like, oh, how dare you look at that speck? And then they get it out and you go, hey, thanks. You ever been there? Yeah. I thank the Lord for the people who've reached into my eyeball. That sounds weird. But you get what I'm saying. And you probably do too. And so this is what Jesus says in this burst of contagious Christianity. Let's keep going. In other words, just see yourself as a gospel discipler who's making disciples. Because you are. I'm not mature enough to make disciples. You're making disciples. The question is, are they good disciples or bad disciples? But you're always making disciples. And he's calling us to make good ones. All right. All right. And then Jesus concludes with an illustration. So be contagious by how we think of ourselves and others. Judge not. Be contagious by how we see ourselves and others. Take the speck out, then you'll be able to take it out. And then be contagious by how we produce for ourselves and others. Verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. He says it once again in negative ways and positive ways. Negatively, good trees do not bear bad fruit. Bad trees do not bear good fruit. He then says it in a positive way on the screen. Good people bear good fruit. Evil people bear bad fruit or evil fruit. And at this point, most sermons terminate with a lot of action steps at this point. All right, so out of all those things, be contagious by going and doing a bunch of stuff. If you want to be a good person, then go bear some good fruit. Good fruit. Do 21 days of fasting. Go sell some stuff. Get into a Bible study. Memorize the book of Leviticus. You know, do all these things. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but that's not what he says to focus on. Right? Jesus gives one action step. And that one action step is focus on your what? Your heart. He didn't say go memorize nothing. He didn't say go study nothing. He didn't say go do a bunch of anything. He said if you want to focus on fruit and contagious Christianity, look at your heart. What does your heart look like? Go to the heart level. Because a heart enamored with Christ will always produce good fruit. It will always pick specks out of our own eye. It will always keep us from being judgy and condemning. It will always help us rightly see ourselves and help us rightly see other people. Now, why not behavior modification? Why not a bunch of action steps? Because isn't this what we do? All right, yes, I want to grow in Christ in 2024, so I'm going to go do a bunch of things to prove that, all right? Why not behavior modification? 
That's our default, especially with our kids. Here's why. Because our hands, our feet, and our mouths will always follow our heart, not vice versa. That's why behavior modification will never work. Yeah, in behavior modification, you can set up some barriers, but any barrier that you set up is just a temporary barrier. Track through this with me. Diets. Oh, snap. We just went there. Diets. You can order those online meals, which will help out temporarily, right? Until you find that Hershey bar you forgot about in the closet. Mm -hmm. Money. You can hire a financial administrator, an accountant, to run your budgeting. Until you realize that you're paying him to run your budgeting, which is counterproductive to saving money. So then you stop using him. Gossip. You can put yourself in a situation where you avoid people and put up a temporary barrier. But you know what? We live in a real world, and then you run into them at Publix. Porn. You can put covenant eyes on your phone. You can put it on your computer. But then you'll always find it on the TV screen. Or somewhere else. Social media. (laughs) You can take it off your device as a temporary barrier, but strangely, why did it come back on your phone a year later? I've learned my lesson. Anxiety. Man, you can go to the therapist every single day. Temporary barrier. But you'll always find something, and you'll always forget about the therapist. Oh, listen, none of those things are bad things. I'm not saying let's not have temporary barriers in our life. I'm just saying that Jesus says that will never satisfy you, and it will never fix you. Because ultimately, everything sinful in us erupts not from our hands, not from our eyes, not from our mouths, but from our heart. All of it. Just so focus on your heart. And so what happens when barriers are removed? We just go back to the things that we were trying to war against. Kobe's not here, so I'll use him as an illustration. Kobe, when he was little, <clears throat> he had this problem with throwing things. He threw all kinds of things. And the thing that drove me the craziest was... <laughs> He would always throw his peas. He threw his peas at the table. You know, I mean, no kid likes peas, and then every parent tries to give their kid peas. What are we doing? Maybe it's our fault. He, he, he would get his peas, and with his spoon, he'd just throw them off the table. And it drove me, y'all know me, absolutely insane. Because there was a mess. And you're like, Troy, it's just peas. It was peas, people. All right. So he'd throw his peas. So finally, I was like, you know what? All right, you're going to throw your peas. I'm smarter than you. Ha <laughs> ha, I will remove your spoon. Boom, you can't fling the peas like a catapult if I remove said catapult. Boom, boom. Got him. Negative. He's still got hands. 
And then he would grab those hands, and I was like, Kobe, don't you dare. Don't you dare throw them peas on the ground. And y'all know, because if you had a two-year-old, you know what's coming next. Then he just looks at me with those beady eyes <laughs> and holds them and just goes. Smash <laughs> peas. I could have taken him out of the high chair. I guess I could have removed the peas, right? It's his heart. And it's fun to laugh at Kobe. But we all have peas, don't we? We all got peas. And he says, hey, 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 you'll never be satisfied with behavior modifications to temporarily remove the peas. Because you'll always go back to the peas unless your heart changes. Unless your heart changes. And then with kids, I need to wrap it up. But I do want to say this. Hey, parents. We, me and Julie Beth have been together for 30 years. We do not know everything. I get it. understand that. But please, if we've learned anything, hear this. If your hope is in your ability to modify the behavior of your child, like if that's your hope for them, then the problem is one day they're out of your house and your barriers are no longer there. If you don't focus on their hearts, then all you're doing is sending them out to be set free and run buck wild. Right? And so Jesus says, hey, here, focus on the heart. Focus on the heart. Behaviors, modifications aren't bad. But if that's your hope, there is no hope. And number two, it's gospelless. Christ affects the heart. When we focus on the heart, real life change occurs. In other words, let's go through all the other things I just said. Well, my body is royalty because of Christ, so I worship through eating as an act of worship and honoring him. My money is royal because of Christ, so I worship in the way that I give it and that I use it. My mouth is royal because of Christ, so I worship in how I use my tongue. My eyes are royal because of Christ, so I look at other humanity as image bearers of God, and I'm careful with what I see. My time is royal because of Christ, so I spend it gazing on Him and not gazing at my neighbor's dinner or their vacation on social media. How dare they have peas in Hawaii? How dare they have peas in Hawaii? That is true. Right? My emotions are royal because of Christ, so I'll not let others rob my joy. Right? And so healthy introspection produces fruit. Because the heart is always producing something. And that's his illustration. So you're wondering, why does he have this plant? And then you might have been, where do we get this podium? Anybody else wonder that? Where did this thing come from? Hey, look at us. We're a big church now. We got a podium. Um, Jesus says, it's really no different than a plant. When we see this plant our eyes instantly go to this, don't it? The fruit. We, we go to the fruit. And so when we read a passage like this, we go, okay, I need to work on my fruit. How do I change my fruit? 
I gotta... But here's the thing about a plant, and I think the reason Jesus uses a plant is because though we focus here, the fruit itself is not the main part of the plant. The fruit doesn't just pop on the scene and start sucking nutrients through the vine. That's not how a plant works. And we think, well, if I do a bunch of fruit, then I will be pulling from the goodness of God. If I do fruit, it will really make a lot of sense and I really shine. So therefore, let me go do some more things. And Jesus says, hey, don't focus here. Focus on the heart. The heart of a plant is the root. The root sucks nutrients from the soil. And then it begins to push outwardly. And as it pushes outwardly, the, healthiest, the healthy nutrients, fruits are unavoidable. They're going to happen. There's no way to stop them. And so that's what Jesus says. He says, hey, don't focus here. Focus on your heart. Out of the heart comes everything. Pumping out fruit. And that's the cool thing. If you want to live 2024 by being a contagious Christian who bears much fruit, don't look at the fruit. Look inward. Look at the heart. See rightly. Think rightly. Focus rightly. Turn towards the heart and you'll produce rightly. And here's the cool thing. You'll produce all kinds of fruit. Fruit that you never dreamed about. When the heart is acting right and it's pumping up, sometimes you'll be like, boom, an apple. I didn't even know I was an apple tree. Boom, oranges. Hey, I produced oranges. Boom, lemons. Boom, watermelon. They don't grow on trees, do they? (laughs) Boom, 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 boom. And we limit ourselves by going, God, I will prove to you my love for you by doing A, B, and C. And he says, no, focus on me. And I'll pull off D, E, F, G, Z, Q, L, P, whatever. I'll do it all. Not because of you, but because I push up fruit for your good and ultimately my my glory. So that you'll never say, I produce this because I'm good. We just stand there and go, I'm rooted in. Pop stuff out. (laughs) And then he starts popping stuff out. And then somebody comes up and goes... That's contagious. How are you doing that? And we go, I'm not. (laughs) Nothing of good that I have done. Only the good that Christ has done through me. We come back to the heart of worship. Band, come on back up. The excitement of fruit-bearing people rooted in the gospel is contagious. It's contagious. And Jesus can change your heart. And he still changes hearts. Have you been touched by Jesus in that way? Where you find your soul satisfaction in life rooted in Him. Is that your satisfaction? 
Man, I hope it is. If it's not, and right now you're going, man, I'll just find joy in it. If you don't have joy right now, I'm asking you the question, why? Is it because you're trying to produce your own joy? You'll never do that. You'll never produce it. If you find yourself rooted in him, you'll have more joy than you ever dreamed of. And yes, there are some people in this room who've had that joy rooted in him, but then we get distracted, don't we? We start looking elsewhere. We'll thank God for passages like this that call us to look right back in. Praise the Lord. That's his grace and kindness. Let's pray. Lord, the passage comes to mind that we would boast in our weaknesses. And you probably tell us that so we won't become narcissists. So yeah, Lord, today, thank you for this passage that calls us to look at those weaknesses. But then we also think of... Passages that tell us that you are the vine and we are the branches. And you delight in taking weak things and making them produce fruit. You love it. And so all across this room, Lord, I see people who have come face to face with your scripture this morning. digging their feet deep within the soil of Christ. Lord, make of this room orchards of gospel goodness.